John 13, 31 through 14, 14. When he had gone out, and that is Judas, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glory him, glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I had said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I would go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that, you, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would know you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. Now, God, hearing your word, and we pray now that, um, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, uh, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may have your seat. 
So the issue now is, Jesus is up in the upper room. This is, to remind us ourselves of the setting here, this is the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. And he knew it was coming. Can you imagine? Kind of put yourself in Jesus' shoes there. He's with his disciples, and he's about ready to experience the, the horrors of the cross. And so now he has basically his last moment with his disciples, whom he's been spending years, three years with. And he is about ready to leave. He knows that it is his time to depart, as it says in verse uh, 33. Little children, yet a little while that I am with you. And that little while is very little. We're talking hours. Until he is crucified and he is buried. Jesus again in verse 33 says, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews many times, Jesus had told the Jews, I'm going to go away. John chapter 7. I will be with you a little while longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. It's what he said in John chapter 7, similar to what he says here. Also, in, a little later in John's gospel, John chapter 14, he says, I'm going away, and I will come to you. So Jesus is about ready to depart, and as he's getting ready to depart, he wants to communicate a few things to them that they're going to need to know while he is gone. So today we're going to look at a few things that Jesus emphasizes here in these verses that we just read. The few things that Jesus wants to stress that they make sure that they understand as he is about ready to depart from them. And the first one is this, and you can follow along in your handout. There's an outline in your handout. The first one is he wants to remind them of the glory of of the cross the glory of the cross now that may sound a little strange and unusual to say um, an instrument of torture and execution is an instrument of glory but in this case that's exactly what the cross is notice how jesus begins judas has just gone out and so now jesus who said he uh, as the beginning of the chapter says, he was ready to love his disciples to the end. Judas is now gone, and now he's going to begin his teaching here. And Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Son of Man is an Old Testament title for a futuristic uh, God-man that was going to come, the anointed servant of the Lord. And it's the title that Jesus uses for himself uh, most frequently in the Gospels. And Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man, meaning me, glorified. And God is glorified in him. He's speaking again of the Son of Man, so of himself. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Notice the emphasis on the words glory there. Glory is quite a theme that's in John's Gospel. I would encourage you to, you have a concordance in the back or your computer software or a website do a search of glory in john's gospel from the very first chapter all the way to the end some 42 times jesus references glory and when you survey it in a lot of those passages I won't do that for you now but if you were to survey that you would see that often not every time but often when it's used of jesus it's 
used of his impending death and his resurrection. Not just the resurrection, all of it, the whole thing. Jesus, the Son of Man, is glorified in his death and his resurrection and his ascension. All, all three. And so Jesus is glorified by his work on the cross, but Jesus, God is also glorified through Jesus' obedience to him. So it's not just what Jesus does on the cross, but in his entire perfect life of following exactly what God sent him to come and do, to accomplish the work that he covenanted with him to do. So there's a couple of things going on here. You have Jesus glorifying the Father in accomplishing this work, and then the Father glorifying him, but that glorification of him will happen at once, it says, um, or immediately in some translations, meaning it's going to, this glorification is going to commence right now. Because it's, going to com it's going to commence with the cross. And as we notice, that's kind of a paradox, isn't it? That the cross, an instrument of execution, punishment, and shame was going to be a demonstration of glory? That's exactly what happens. The cross and crucifixion, if you were to understand what is happening to a person who is crucified, it's horrific to think about. First, the person is beaten with cords on their back, back whipped all on their backside, shoulders all the way down to their calves. And then they take this person who, who already has major parts of their body torn open and they nail them to a cross. Basically, is like a wood cross beam, and then they elevate that, and then they put that up, usually on a another post in the ground, or typically a tree. It's usually done outside of Roman cities on the roads as you were coming into the city. So all the criminals would be punished for high treason or for murder or for outrageous crimes. They would be uh, crucified hung upon a cross, their hands nailed to this cross beam, their feet nailed to the tree or to the vertical beam. And over time, you're eventually, it constricts your chest, it makes it harder to breathe. So in order for them to fit that impulse to breathe, they have to push down on the spike to just elevate their chest enough so that they could take a breath. It's horrible. It's graphic. This was not just punishing a person by taking their life. It was to draw out such a painful and excruciating death as long as possible and not somewhere private behind a wall, but out in public in the main thoroughfare or drive down 131 and you could see billboards. That's the idea. 
it wasn't just death. It wasn't just a painful death. It was a publicly humiliating death. That was the point. So how in the world can this be a demonstration of God's glory? I love the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When he's speaking about this message of the gospel that God would take on human flesh and then be crucified and dead and buried. Which would go against every other depiction of a deity in all of the ancient Greek world. Where the more successful and victorious you were, the more exalted you would be. So the Apostle Paul writing to Galatians talking about this crazy notion that you would preach. You go, hey, there's this victorious ruler and savior of the entire world. And he was crucified on a Roman cross and (laughs) placed in a tomb. So the Apostle Paul says this to the Corinthians, one major Greek city. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The gospel, the good news that delivers us from our sins and into a right relationship with God is a demonstration of God upending all of the wisdom of the world. God is choosing to use things that would be foolish and despised by worldly eyes and is making that uh, the, the act of his wisdom. He's shaming the wise. He's taking things that are low and despised in the world, and then he's bringing things out of it, namely salvation. I love what J.C. Ryle says about this. I encourage you, if you ever want a good devotional book on the Gospels, I would encourage you to get J.C. Ryle, the manly Mr. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool from a century and a half or so ago. He says this. He talks about the double glorification that is happening here. How the crucifixion, crucifixion brought glory to the Father and that the crucifixion brought, brought glory to the Son. Uh, and, and I should have put this on the slide so it would be easier to hear. But just, just hear with me as you can. The crucifixion brought, brought glory to the Father. It glorified his wisdom, faithfulness, holiness, and love. Sound familiar? Sound similar to the attributes we did in question seven of our catechism. It showed him wise in providing a plan whereby he could be just and the justifier of the ungodly. How could God be just in punishing sin and yet still justify a sinner? The cross of Christ demonstrates his wisdom. It showed him as faithful in keeping his promise that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. The idea here is that the plan of redemption 
of Adam and all of his descendants was going to have to come through a seed of his, and that seed will end up crushing Satan, but, that's, but Satan will have to uh, strike at his heel. The crucifixion is the fulfillment of that verse, Genesis 3.15. So it showed him faithful in keeping that promise. It showed him as holy, number three, in requiring his law's demands be satisfied by a great substitute. And it showed him loving in providing such a mediator, such a redeemer, and such a friend for sinful man as his co-eternal son. That's how the crucifixion brought glory to the Father. Ryle continues, The crucifixion brought glory to the Son. It glorified his compassion, his patience, and his power. It showed him most compassionate in dying for us, suffering in our stead, allowing himself to be counted in sin and a curse for us, and buying our redemption with the price of his own blood. It showed him most compassionate and it showed him most patient in not dying the common death of most men, but in willingly submitting to such horrors and unknown agonies as no mind can conceive. When with a word, he could have summoned his father's angels and had been set free. It showed his compassion and his patience and his power. It showed him most powerful in bearing the weight of all the world's transgressions and vanquishing Satan and despoiling him of his prey. Crucifixion glorified the Father's love and glorified the Son's love. So one of the first things Jesus has to stress to them, the first words out of his mouth, even before he's telling them that he's leaving in verse 33, he says this, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him, and, and if God is glorified in him, God will glorify him in himself. It's the glorification of his love for his people. That's the first one, the glory of the cross. But the second thing that Jesus wants to stress to them is the greatness of of a commandment, or and I would say the greatness of the new commandment. The greatness of the new commandment. Notice that's in verse 34 and 35. Uh, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. Here's the great command. Of Jesus. Many times Jesus tells his disciples that they must keep his commandments. As a matter of fact, you're going to see that theme uh, in the, all of this great discourse from John 13 all the way through John um, 15, 14, 15, and into 17. And Jesus' commandments here, and we, I, don't want to make them, I don't want us to make the mistake in thinking Jesus' commandments are, are different or uh, better than or replacing God's eternal commandments. After all, Jesus came with the words he says that the Father him sent him. That we saw that in chapter 12. Furthermore, Jesus and the Father are one. 
To believe Jesus was to believe the Father, as he said in chapter 12, verses 44 and 45. And as he's going to say in a moment, we're going to, see, we're going to take a look at it. So we can no more separate Jesus' commandments from God's commandments than we can separate Jesus from the Father. So Jesus here is giving them a new commandment, he says. Well, the question is, what, what exactly is new about it? The commandment here, love one another, is, is actually not new. When Jesus is asked, which is the greatest of the commandments? And he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, or heart, soul, and strength. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And the whole second table of the, the Ten Commandments, from commandment 5 through 10, is, uh, is summarized by loving others as, your, as yourself. And Jesus quotes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So to love other people, that's not a new commandment. What's new? What's new about this new commandment? What's new is that the standard has changed. What's new is that the standard has changed. The standard is no longer how we love your, ourselves, right? Because the command was, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The standard Jesus gives here, what makes this new, the newness of it is, the standard is now how Jesus loves us. Which doesn't contradict to the old one. It just deepens it, doesn't it? The commandment was we should love our neighbors as ourselves. And Jesus goes, well, it's, it's a little new. Sure, you should love your neighbors as yourself, but you should go more than that. You should love your neighbors as I loved you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Jesus displays this in the, in the foot washing. The parable, it was enacted out. And he displays this supremely on the cross, the sacrificing of himself for his disciples. So friends, we are called to love one another. Jesus gives us a high call and a high charge and a high command. We are to love uh, others as ourselves, but Jesus goes, but you're to love as Christ has loved us. You see this many times in the New Testament, uh, for instance, this kind of focus on the work of Christ. Let me just give one in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. You could write this down and, and see this for yourself. That he says, and this is Paul's prayer, he says that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see how those two are put together there? To be rooted and grounded in love and to then be filled with all the fullness of God comes through knowing the love of Christ, which he, and he's like, which we can never fully know. That's how vast it is. 
I want you to know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, but in, in truth, it's going to surpass it. Christ's love is going to surpass far more than we can see. But Paul's prayer is that, that you would know Christ's love more and more and more, that you would continue to plumb the heights of it, to plumb the depths of it, to, plumb, to stretch out the lengths of how much Christ loves us, and reflecting on that, and he goes, now you're grounded in love for one another. Or as the same author of this gospel will say in his letters, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is what Jesus wants to stress to his disciples as he's going to leave. He wants to point out the glory of the cross, but also the greatness of his commandment. Now, Peter interrupts here. So there's, if you'll notice as you read through this, uh, Jesus keeps getting interrupted. Like, I think Jesus has his whole speech prepared. And then, you know, it's like the guys, three guys just had raised their hand and interrupt him all the time. You see Peter doing it in verse 36. You see Thomas doing it in chapter 14, verse 5. You see Philip doing it in 14.8. So Jesus now is addressing some of their interruptions here. Okay, so there's a little flow, a break in the flow of the outline. So Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? And again, bless Peter. Wow. Jesus has just said, I'm going to go to the cross and, and by being glorified. And then he says, and now a new commandment I give to you. Verse 34, love one another. And Jesus's, or Peter's interruption was, he's still stuck on verse 33. It is little children, I'm, I'm, you're going to seek me. And as I told the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then he goes, and I'm going to love one another. And it's like that totally washed over Peter. He's like, wait, 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 you're leaving? Love one another. Wait, no, no, no. What? You're leaving? Bless Peter. Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. First of all, notice the compassion of Jesus' words here, what he's going to say. And what this, what's the meaning behind here and how soft he's saying it to Peter. You, you cannot follow me now, but you, you will follow me afterward. We'll get to that here in a moment. Verse 37, but Peter said to him, well, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus addresses that one in two ways. One, he said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So here, if I could give, you know, three, uh, three, notice three things that are happening here. Peter wants to follow Jesus now. And Jesus says, you're not going to follow me now. Um, you'll actually deny me now. In just a matter of a few hours, all this enthusiasm that you have is going to vaporize and disappear. You sympathize with Peter? How often do we have our enthusiasm for Jesus wane? But how important it is that, that Jesus then knows that 
and he recognizes that and he restores that. So Peter wants to follow him now. He's like, you're not going to follow me now. You're going to deny me now. And then the second one is Peter thinks that he's going to lay his life down for Jesus. As if Peter, did you catch what he's saying? He's really making a mistake here that Jesus is coming to lay his life down for him and for all of his people, the sins of the entire world. And here's Peter's trying to substitute it. I want to put myself, I want to die in your place. And Jesus is like, that's not how it works. So it reminds me of Exodus when, uh, when the people of Israel had made the golden calf and were worshiping the golden calf and the Lord is just angry at them that they've already broken the covenant at this, this moment. And he tells, the Lord tells Moses on the mountain, you better get away. <laughs> you don't want to watch this. He goes, because I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start all over. And then Moses, you remember this passage? Moses goes, Lord, kill me. But let your people live because you made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll give myself. And the Lord doesn't kill Moses and he doesn't kill the Israelites. And the reason why is because he knows there is one day. I'm not going to accept you, Moses, as the atoning sacrifice for the people. But one day there will come one. A prophet like you, as a matter of fact. So here Peter is, I'll try to, I'll, I'll die in your place. And Jesus is like, that's not how it works. Jesus dies in ours. And then the last thing here, Peter will follow Jesus in death like his one day. Jesus is saying, you will die for following, you will not die for following me now. You will die for following me later. So he says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow me afterward. Jesus is already hinting to Peter what, what's going to happen. Now, if we could fast forward a little bit to the, to the end of, um, uh, of John's uh, gospel. He tells him. He tells uh, this is after Jesus's resurrection. He appears. This is John chapter 20, 20, one, verse 18. Where Peter is having a discussion with Jesus here post resurrection. It's as Jesus is appearing and walking and he's cooking fish by the seashore. And Peter has some concerns. Well, what about John and this and. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And even then, that's a softened language here. He says here in verse 19, John adds this. This he said to show by what kind, um, what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And of course, the church history tells us that Peter ends up being crucified. And as the story goes, crucified for his faith in Jesus Christ. And as the story goes, that he has to be crucified upside down. Because he didn't feel it was worthy. He was worthy to be crucified in the same way as his Lord. Again, that's a church tradition that's not in the scriptures. 
There's some who doubt the, the accuracy or the historicity of that. But you see glimpses of it here in the Gospels. Jesus is saying here, you're, you, where I'm going to that cross, you can't come now, but you will afterward. He's telling him, you're, you're going to be crucified afterward. And just like when you were a kid, you would dress up. You know, somebody else had to dress you and take you where you, didn't, you don't want to go. Jesus tells Peter that so to tell him what kind of death he was going to glorify God. So that's Peter interrupting there. But then we now get to the next point. Jesus resumes his thought. He's going back to his discourse. He said, okay, thanks, Peter, for your question, your interruption. I'm now going to jump back to what I need to talk about. And he see this in chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. So now here's the third thing he wants to talk about. And he wants to guarantee them of their and our celestial home. Okay? So he wanted to remind them the glory of the cross. What you're about to witness, you guys, in a couple of hours, this horrific, shameful thing, know that it's coming. I know that it's coming. And it's not really a shameful. It's going to be glorious. One. Two, you have to... Uh, Follow the great commandment to love one another. But it's new. Why is it new? Because it is not love others as you love yourself. It's love others as I loved you. And you will be, that will be really clear in a few hours. Now he wants to stress. And he goes, while I'm gone, I want to let you know this. That I am guaranteeing you a celestial home. Or a place in God's kingdom. We could put it that way. Verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. The point of going and preparing the place was not to leave you there. The going, preparing the place is to come back and to take you to myself that you may be where I am also. And he says, and you know the way there. Interruption number two. Here's Thomas. Thomas interrupts. Wait a second. So you're talking about the way there. What's the way there? Verse 5. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How, how, can you, how can we know the way? Now Jesus then answers here a couple of other things that I think are also important for us to know as Jesus is leaving his disciples. First of all, his exclusive uniqueness. Very famous verse here in John's gospel. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, you, the way, you're looking for the path, I am the way. Furthermore, I am the truth. Furthermore, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Okay, so let's just think about the exclusive uniqueness of Jesus. And why am I using both of those terms? Well, the uniqueness is that Jesus is the only one and he is the only way to the Father. This directly, this is one of the most offensive verses today uh, to all of the other world religions or various forms of Christianity. Really, it is the most offensive one because Jesus is refusing to be wedded to some other way. There's some that will say that even well, God accepts all kinds of religions and Jesus is just one among many. No, it's not. It's unique. And you can only exclusively gain eternal life through me and through me only. 
There's some who will attempt to say, oh, well, um, that's true. Jesus is the only way, but Jesus is actually kind of the hidden figure that hides behind the face of various religions. So in a way, yeah, they're getting this is kind of a universal Christ, the universal Jesus. There's the Jesus of history, but then there's the universal Christ, and he's willing to use whatever, you know, Buddhism or, you know, all these different things, because ultimately the, the core idea is there and that Jesus is willing to kind of be the one kind of behind that. You can come through that religion, but you're really coming to Jesus anyway. No. It's, that's, that's paganism. A lot of the, the problems with ancient Israelites was not that they rejected Yahweh and said, we're not going to worship Yahweh, we're going to worship Asherah. Or we're going to worship Baal. That wasn't the main problem. The main problem was that they were, we're going to worship Yahweh and Asherah. We're going to worship Yahweh and Baal. Jesus here is the Lord. He's telling you, I am the Lord the only one. You cannot come to the Father except through me. The exclusive uniqueness. And few churches are willing to stand on this in our day. So Thomas interrupts. How are we going to know? I am the way, Thomas. And now Philip interrupts. <laughs> Lord, show us. You just had mentioned in verse 7 that you, if we have seen you, we've seen the Father. So show, show us the Father, that's enough. Jesus now says, verse 9, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whatever has, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you be not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So here, I would add this. We had the exclusive uniqueness of Jesus in answering Thomas. And now we have the essential union of Jesus with the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? We've seen this many times in John's Gospel. John chapter 10. I and the Father are one. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So what Jesus is, is getting at here is quite clearly there's an essential union between Jesus, the eternal Son of God, and God the Father. We just handled this in our catechism questions this morning, right? How many persons are in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have to understand that Jesus was fully man, but he was fully God. He wasn't, it wasn't like tick-tocking between fully God sometimes and then fully man sometimes. And he was fully man, fully God, 100% of the time. And this, the early church had to work out constantly over heresy after heresy that would kind of crop up to have different kinds of views of Jesus. We can't get into all of those now, but it was kind of finally settled at a council First of all, written in 325, but then finalized in 381 at the Nicene Council, and it's in the Nicene Creed. And so what I want us to, to read here, the beginning or the middle part of this. The Nicene Creed kind of follows like the, Apost the Apostles' Creed. There's uh, three parts, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. 
This is what it says about God the Son. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So Jesus' response to Thomas is, I am the exclusive, the unique path for salvation. And I, in response to Philip, am the, the one who has essential union with the Father of one being. This is what Jesus needs to impress upon his disciples. The glory of the cross despite the shame that they're going to witness soon. The greatness of the new commandment, while he leaves, they need to follow. The guarantee of our celestial home. And then lastly, the gift of the counselor. And I think he hints at it here. Next week, Lord willing, when we come back on the Lord's Day, we're going to look at what Jesus says about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14 and in 15 and in 16, we'll look at passages from each of those chapters. Jesus has extended discussion about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But I think he hints at it a little bit here um, that, one, that they're, what they're going to need to know is the gift of the Holy Spirit that's going to be coming. And you see this in verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And not just the works of Jesus, he's greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. It, it's in, Jesus saying here, it's because I'm going to the Father that you guys are going to end up doing greater works. Well, how? How are you going to do greater works? We're going to find out that it's can be only be done by the Spirit of God, by the powerful Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, or the advocate or helper or counselor that we're going to see. But this is what Jesus stresses to his disciples. The glory of his cross, the greatness of the new great commandment, and the guarantee of their celestial home. Brothers here, brothers and sisters, hear these words of commissioning to send us on our way. The words from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's stand for prayer together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending your Son. And we thank you that it's because of his obedient life, his holy and sinless life, and his obedience in going to this cross that you have glorified him and that he has glorified you. And we thank you that now he is our glorified Savior. And we glory in him and his work for us on our behalf. And keeping in mind the fact that he suffered on that cross and loved us to that great extent, we would ask that you would by your spirit the power that is at work in us that you would enable us to love one another as Jesus loved us. We'd ask you would give us the strength to do that as we journey to the celestial home that our Savior has prepared for us. We ask that you would do that in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, amen. Now, brothers and sisters, may you, being rooted and grounded in love, have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Thank you.